0: Thanks to all of you for, for being part of service and worship here today. I get to uh, conclude our series, it's like kind of like a mini-series we've had over the past couple of weeks called Jesus Defining Moments. And over these past few weeks, we've had the opportunity to look at some really pivotal and key moments in Jesus' life. Pastor Chris kicked us off a couple of weeks ago and He uh, walked us through the baptism of Jesus and shared with us what that meant for Jesus and what that also means for us. And ultimately, the takeaway for each and every one of us is for those of us who know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we ought to be baptized. And if you've yet to take that next step, we'd encourage you to do so. Last week, Pastor Alex walked us through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness by, by Satan And he shared how Jesus overcame the lies of the enemy and how we can do the same. Today, we're not going to focus on just one event in Jesus' life. We're actually going to look at two, because today is traditionally known as Palm Sunday in the church. It commemorates the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about Jesus' triumphal entry, but also... We're going to be talking about the Last Supper because it's, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today as part of our celebration of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus' triumphal entry and also the Last Supper that he shared with his disciples. Those are kind of our bookends for today, and we're going to look at some of the events in between that helped shape those really uh, pivotal and important defining moments in the life of Jesus. Now, I'll warn you, for any of you that have perhaps been a part of the church for any length of time... What we're going to go over today uh, is going to be pretty familiar. You're going to have heard the story before. Even if you don't know Jesus, there's a good chance that you've heard some of this before. And it's actually, it's interesting. There's something about us humans that makes us pretty unique. And that is, if we know how the story turns out, we just jump to the end of the story. We like reconciliation. And spoiler alert, I hate to break it to you, but it's been a couple thousand years. Jesus rises from the dead. Okay, now if you've never heard that, come back next week. Pastor Chris is really going to walk us through that in more detail. Uh, pretty big deal here at the church, but we always just want to hop right to there. And I would encourage us today to not just hop there. We're going to methodically kind of make our way there, because I want us throughout the message today to put ourselves in the place of Jesus' disciples. I want us to kind of go on a journey with them throughout these last days before Jesus was handed over to be crucified and then eventually was resurrected from the dead. Because for the disciples, they didn't know what was going to happen, right? They didn't have that luxury. In fact, for them, they were walking through something that was not turning out the way that they thought it would. We're going to look at that today. This whole story they thought was going to go a drastically different way than it actually did. And we can relate to that, right? How many of us have had things happen in our lives that didn't turn out the way that that we thought they would, right? Sometimes those are good things, and sometimes they're really challenging things, right? But we can relate to that. A few weeks ago, Facebook reminded me, I'm rarely on Facebook anymore, so when I pop on, they they want to get me, right? Share those heartfelt memories, the real, the heartstring ones. And they said, do you realize... They didn't say it, but there were pictures. Do you realize that 14 years ago today you were engaged to your wife Leslie? It's like the memories, right? And I reflected on that, and I was like, "Wow, what a great memory!" And I also reflected on the fact that that night didn't turn out any, uh, didn't turn out how Les thought it would, because, like a good husband to be, I lied to her face. Right, she thought we were going to go hang out with friends. What she didn't know is that our friends—they uh, owned a coffee shop and they lived above the coffee shop. What she didn't know is that our friends had transformed their coffee shop, and a couple dozen of our closest friends were in that coffee shop. Now, if you're thinking, "Wow, you were pretty confident," I'd run a couple test runs before this. You know, we wanted to make sure that there was going to be a yes at the end of this. There was. Uh, And I'll never forget the joy on her face when she opened that door and saw all of our friends and everything that we kind of had prepared, well, I prepared for that evening. I actually told her uh, at the end of that night, honey, I will never do anything more romantic than this moment. (laughs) I have peaked. I don't think I have another one of these in me. And I have held true to that statement. (laughs) And she still married me. so. But I share a happy memory because for many of us, when things don't turn out the way that we expect, it's not happy, right? The relationship didn't work out, or the job didn't turn out, or something tragic happened to our family. I don't know. But we all can relate to the fact that in life, things don't always turn out the way that we would, see, that we would hope that they seemed. And so as we walk through our passage for today, we need to keep in mind that for the disciples, things weren't going exactly how they thought they would. Because for the disciples, they had a pretty good idea of who Jesus was supposed to be. They had a pretty good idea of who they thought the Messiah would be. Not only the disciples, but those that followed Jesus. We're going to read about some in the crowd that day. They all had a preconceived notion of who the Messiah would be. They thought that their Messiah was gonna be a conquering military hero who would remove any foreign oppressors, any foreign oppression, and establish a new Israelite nation. Before we go any farther, you just have to understand that was the mindset of the people that Jesus was interacting with, that he was rubbing elbows with. That's what they thought. And so as we prep for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it's important for us to set the context, right, to understand how the folks in that time were thinking. Now, I'll be honest, as, they, as we go through our, our Bible passages for today, you're going to see that for some, it was a pretty hard pill to swallow as they began to realize that Jesus probably wasn't going to be the person that they, that he thought, that they thought He was. It was pretty hard for them to swallow, and I'll be honest with you, even for us, in our personal walk with Jesus, there comes times when Jesus says, no, no, this is who I am, and we go, I don't know if I like that, Jesus. I don't know if I like that. But through it all, we need to hold on to one thing. It's our take-home point for today. I want us to hold on to this as we walk through this message, because this is the truth of what we're going to be walking through today. And if we can hold on to this, the rest of it begins to make sense. And and it's this, Jesus is Lord, but not in the way we may expect. The important thing is that He's Lord. The expectations are things that we have to work through and walk through as well. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. We're going to Read through the triumphal entry here in a moment. But before we get to our Bible passage for today, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. Lord, I ask right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would rule and reign in this place. Lord, open our hearts to receive your word. Father God, we thank you. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Matthew 21, 1 through 11 says this. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If any asks you what you're doing, just say the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, praise God, literally, Hosanna for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord." Praise God, Hosanna in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem in a very specific way. And as we just mentioned, the disciples and also the folks in that crowd had a pretty good idea of who they thought the Messiah was going to be, right? The military conquering hero. Why did they have that idea? Where did that come from? Well, it comes from the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are prophetic passages. We just read one, right? That said how Jesus would enter the city of Jerusalem. There are other passages that talk about the Messiah as a conquering hero who would and will reestablish the nation of Israel. There are also other passages in the Bible that talk about the Messiah as a suffering servant who would give himself and sacrifice himself for the world. And like so many folks throughout history, do you know what they did? They took the passages that they really liked and they hung on to those and they totally ignored the ones that they didn't. Not that any of us have ever done something similar, right? They really liked the conquering hero part and the suffering part, well, let's not talk about that right now. And so Jesus entered into Jerusalem in this very specific way. Why? Well, in those days, it wasn't abnormal for a conquering hero or a king or a general to enter into a city and be presented with what is known as a triumph. And in a triumph, what would happen is that person would be exalted, they would be honored, probably robed in purple, a crown would be placed on their head. They'd sit in a chariot or stand in a chariot that was drawn by four or six horses, and they would proceed through the center of town where everybody in the crowd would heap praise upon them and accolades, right, for everything that they had done. And many believed that that person, at least for that day, was worthy of all praise because not only were they great, they were as close to God, if not God, for at least that one day for at least that one day. The Romans did it, the Greeks did it, the Persians did it, everyone did it. But what the prophecy, which comes from Zechariah 9.9 declared was that the Messiah would enter in triumph, but not clothed in purple, not being drawn by horses in a chariot. No, he would come on what? On the colt of a donkey. Not even like the grown-up donkey, right? He's on the mini donkey. Why? Because it's kind of ridiculous. It's humbling to enter in to the city in that way. But the crowd knew what that meant. They knew the prophecies and they went, he's here. He's here. And they responded like they should. They laid down their cloaks before him. They cut tree branches off the trees, some of which undoubtedly were palms, right? Why did they do that? Because they were rolling out the red carpet, right? In fact, in those days, when you did things like that, it was as if you were coronating a king. They were coronating their king. But what kind of king were they coronating is the question. What's also interesting is that they... Heaped praise upon Jesus. They said, Hosanna, which literally means save us. Hosanna means save us. We just think it's a a, a word that means praise. It means save us. They're saying, Jesus, save us. Save us from what? Well, the people of Israel at this point had been oppressed for hundreds of years at this point by the Romans, but before that, the Greeks and the Persians and go on and on and on and on. For hundreds of years, they were waiting for their deliverer. And finally, he had arrived. He had arrived, and so they exalted him. They praised him. And what's interesting is if you read through the Gospels, up to this point, at any time, if anyone said to Jesus, you're the Son of God, or uh, acknowledged who he really was, or tried to praise him in any way, what did Jesus do? He said, no, 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 don't say it. It's not my appointed time. Don't tell anyone, don't tell people who I am. It's not my appointed time. But this time it's different, right? This time, he let them praise him. He accepted the praise because he was worthy of it. And what's interesting is he accepted praise that admittedly was misguided. They thought he was gonna do a thing. He knew he was going to save them. And so for that moment and in that time, he accepted the praise. The passage goes on to tell us that the city was in an uproar. And why wouldn't it be, right? The person that you had been waiting for for hundreds of years had arrived. The Deliverer was here. The Messiah had come. And so what did the crowd want? What were they expecting? They were expecting Jesus to hop off that colt and to pick up a sword. Honestly, that's what they wanted. They expected Jesus to hop off the colt to pick up the sword. And if Jesus were the king, the Messiah that they wanted, here's what he would have done. He would have, like, we've seen the movies, right? We've read the books on, like, coups and stuff, right? Treason. He'd have started to sow the seeds of treason. He'd have started to spread the discontent. He'd have gathered his forces to his side, right? That's what you do when you're a conquering military hero. And that's what they wanted Jesus to do. That's the Jesus that they wanted. That's the Jesus they expected. But that's not what Jesus did. We know that because we know the end. But let's not go to the end. Let's for a moment just sit and think about what it's like to be a disciple or to be a person in the crowd that day and then to see what Jesus would do over the next several days. Again, we're looking at two defining moments in the life of Jesus. We're looking at the triumphal entry, and we're also looking at the Last Supper. In the book of Matthew, it's about four or five chapters in between those two events, and I would encourage you to read through them this week, because I'm not going to read them all for us today. Sigh of relief. No, we're not going to look at them, but we are going to look at high level what Jesus did in the handful of days between his triumphal entry and the Last Supper. Here's what happened. He condemned the Jewish people for their lack of faith while exalting the faith of tax collectors and prostitutes. Okay? He told some of his harshest parables where he freely admitted God would leave many Jews out of his eternal kingdom. He condemned the Pharisees, the most respected Jewish leaders and teachers of the day, for their hypocrisy. And finally, he foretold the destruction of the Jewish temple, the very symbol and image of the Jewish faith. Here's the deal, friends, without a temple, there is no Jewish or Israelite nation. It can't happen, it can't happen. Think about this, a few days prior, Jesus had entered into the town with great fanfare, and then he just systematically destroyed the popularity contest. He did everything he could to quench the momentum, right? He just undermined all of it. Day after day, he said and did things that frankly made people want to kill him. Now again, for us, we want to hop to the end, right? As Paul Harvey was fond of saying, we know the rest of the story. Let's not go there. Let's just sit there. Imagine you're a disciple. Imagine you're a person in the crowd. Think of the joy that you had a couple of days before only to watch the guy that you thought was the Messiah say and do these things. Think about it. Think about the internal struggle and turmoil that that would be. Because they had crafted an image of Jesus. This is who our Messiah is. And Jesus was saying, no, this is who I am. And friends, again, let's be honest. All of us should attest to the fact that at some point, we've all crafted our own image of Jesus. I can prove it to you. Think of Jesus in your mind. I did it this week as I kind of prepared for this message. Every morning I sat down and I imagined Jesus. And you know what? Jesus looked a lot like me, talked like me. He agrees with a lot of things that I agree with. He's a pretty good guy. We would hang out. And I bet it's the same for each and every one of you. Because we all craft a Jesus in our mind that we like. Friends, the question isn't what happens, or it, it's not what happens if we build a version of Jesus, because we all do it. That's not the question. Rather, the question is what happens when we meet the true Jesus, and how do we respond to him? Okay? That's what we've got to hang on to. Remember, Jesus is Lord but oftentimes not in a way that we would expect. Now, I try to be sympathetic towards the disciples because Jesus just said and did things all the time that I can only imagine, like, for three years, those guys had to feel like they were in the spin cycle of the laundry. Like, why is he going there? Why did he say that? You're not supposed to do that. Who are you? Right? And you you think, like, maybe at the end they would get a break. Like, he doubled down. They thought he was gonna be this conquering hero. Then they watched him, in a span of less than a week, undermine everything, ruin his reputation. Ruin it all. And I can only imagine what was going on in their hearts and in their minds. Because honestly, friends, their heads had to be spinning. And you would think that maybe right before the end, Jesus would give them a little bit of relief, and he did, but then he began to tell them things that he admitted they wouldn't understand, but he desperately wanted to share them in the Last Supper. We know that he wanted to share these words because the Bible tells us so. It says this in Luke 22, 15 through 16, Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The Last Supper, which we'll talk about a lot throughout this Easter week, especially on Good Friday, commemorates the last meal that Jesus was to share with his friends. And Jesus so desired to have this meal that the Bible records his words I'm very eager. Why? Because he wanted to finally, one last time, with finality, to state for his followers who he truly was. Not who they thought he was, but who he truly was. Matthew 26 26 through 30 records his words. He said, As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. It's interesting that for... Some of his final words, Jesus would choose to reinterpret the elements of a a common meal, a Passover meal, but a meal with which they would be very familiar. Why did he do it? I think he did it for two reasons. The first was, again, to help his disciples understand who he truly was. Think about it. They thought he was a conquering military hero who would do what? Who would restore the nation of Israel. For who? For them. For them for them. That's what they thought their Messiah would do. But what did Jesus say He would do? Jesus said, I am going to freely give my body, no one's taking it, I'm giving it, to, for what? As a sacrifice. My blood will be poured out for what? The remission of sins. My goal isn't to reestablish Israel, Jesus was saying. My goal is to save the world, and you get to play a part You get to play a part. Because the kingdom that Jesus had in mind was far bigger than just one nation. He had the world in mind. What's interesting, and this is the second point, is he knew that even as he said these words, they wouldn't get it. The Gospel of John actually records that they didn't get it until well after Jesus was had died and was resurrected. But he knew that they would get it eventually. And when they did, they would need to hold on to the fact that he gave of himself for the sins of everyone, and they would need to remember that. And so he constituted, in the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, which we get to celebrate today. And we know that the disciples eventually got it, because if they didn't, we're not doing this today, right? But we are, because he knew that even though they would despise him, reject him, deny Him, and abandon Him, that eventually, one day, the light bulb would kick on. Now, think about that. He knew that they wouldn't get it, and yet He told them anyways. And sometimes for us, we're like, the disciples are just kind of slow, right? Lest we be judgy, as the kids say these days, let's cut them a little bit of slack, right? Again, think of all that they're walking through, Think of everything that's shifting in their mind in this moment. Again, we want to jump to the end, but let's not. Let's sit here. I've had the opportunity to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior for over 30 years. And I can tell you one thing in particular. I know him better today than I've known him at any other point in my life. But I can look back on what I used to think that I knew about Jesus and go, wow, that was off. Because our God is faithful to reveal who he is to each And every one of us, for any of us in this room who have known Jesus for any length of time, I believe you could say something very similar because we all build a version of Jesus. The question is, what do we do when we're confronted with the true Jesus? Well, let's be honest. The disciples didn't do great when they were confronted with the true Jesus, nor did the crowd, right? Now, I can't tell you that the crowd that was gathered for the day when Jesus was crucified was the same crowd that coronated and praised Him on Palm Sunday. I can't tell you that. But I think there's probably a few common folks between both of the crowds, right? And we already know what the disciples did. They abandoned Jesus that day. They left. They fled. Because when Jesus was about what He was supposed to do, They said, this isn't the King that we wanted. This isn't the Messiah that we anticipated. This isn't the one for us. They didn't want Jesus, ultimately, until they did. Because here's the deal, friends, eventually they did. There have been points in my life, even as a pastor, where I've questioned whether Jesus was the Son of God. I'll be honest, not so much anymore. But I was early in my faith, I had questions. And one of the things that I really clung to through those periods in my life is I I couldn't begin to understand, to comprehend, or explain the disciples. Here's what I mean. When Jesus died, what did they do? Well, the Scripture tells us. They hid in a room. Why did they hide in a room? Because they were afraid that what happened to Jesus was going to happen to them. If we could go back in a time machine and go to that room and be like, Peter, what are you guys doing? He'd be like, What are we doing? We're hiding so we don't get killed like Jesus did. Well, aren't you excited about what's going to happen? No. Our hope is gone. Jesus is dead. We backed the wrong horse. That's what happened. What about the crowd? No Messiah, no one with a sword, their hope gone as well. But we do know that Jesus did rise from the dead, right? And nothing confounds me more. This is where I can't understand the disciples. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, I don't know that they ever leave that room. But if he does rise from the dead, and he is who he claimed to be, Then, within a span of a few weeks, about 50 days, we encounter a group of guys who are doing what? In Acts 2, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're boldly proclaiming the truth and name of Jesus as Savior and Lord. It doesn't make any sense unless Jesus is who we actually claim to be. Friends, here's the reality that we have to face Jesus will not change. No matter how much we might want him to, he's never going to change. He didn't change for these folks. He's not going to change for us. But the reality is, as we come to know him, as he is our Savior and our Lord, as we spend time with him, as we read his word, we will be confronted with the true Jesus. And in that moment, we, like the disciples and the people in the crowd, are faced with the choice. Either we change or we reject him. That's it. And we should take hope. Why? Because the disciples rejected him. The crowd rejected him. And then within a handful of weeks, what happens? Those disciples are proclaiming the truth of Jesus, the true Messiah. They understood who he truly was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Who did they proclaim truth to? The crowds. Now again, I can't tell you That the people in those crowds were the same folks who were in the crowd on Palm Sunday, were the same folks who shouted to crucify him. But I'd like to think some of them were. Think about the hope that we have in a God who is so patient that knows that even when we praise him, misguided though it may be, even when he tells us things he knows that we won't yet understand, is so patient. And so loving that he died anyway. For who? For you. And for me. That's the hope that we have as a result of Palm Sunday and the Lord's Supper. The week between Palm Sunday and Easter in church history is what's known as Holy Week. Holy Week is specifically a time that we get to set aside a portion of our calendar to remember Jesus, to remember who he is, and to remember all that he has done for each and every one of us. Friends, Jesus is our Lord. He may not always come in the way we expect, but when he does, if we change, if we, transform, if we are changed by him, our lives will be transformed. So this week, here's what I would encourage you to do. As you're in your quiet time, as you're reading your word, every morning as you wake up, would you pause and say, Jesus, what image do I have of you? Is that who you truly are? Would you reveal to me who you are? Would you show me who you are? And what does that mean for my life? Because friends, a lot of us come to faith because we hope that Jesus will do things for us, and he will. But ultimately, we have a Savior and Lord who invites us to join Him in what He's doing, which is to spread hope to a world in desperate need of Him. As we do so, we'll be living out our next step for today, which is this. I will let Jesus rule in my life as He sees fit this week. I'll let Jesus rule in my life as He sees fit this week. If you're here today and you don't yet know Jesus... I would encourage you, accept Him as Savior and Lord. Allow Him to rule in your life as He sees fit, today and every day. Here at New Life, we say taking this next step is simple, but it's not easy. It's as simple as A, B, C, admit, believe, confess. We all admit, or we should admit, that we are in desperate need of Jesus as our Savior and Lord because we're sinners. We're separated from Him and from God. We believe, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which He declared Himself to be, and as such, He has the right to be the Savior and Lord of our lives. And we confess, we confess our need for Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we confess our sins to Him, and we commit to following Him, empowered each and every day by the Holy Spirit. If that's you here today, if you don't yet know Jesus, in a moment here I'm going to pray, and I would invite you to join with me in praying a prayer of salvation, that would begin to forge that relationship between you and a God who loves you more than any of us will ever know. For those of us who do know Jesus as Savior and Lord, it's my hope and prayer that as we pray even now that the Lord would reveal more of who He is to each and every one of us, that we would have a true idea of Jesus and a true image of Him. So let's pray. Father God, we thank You and praise You for who You are. Lord, I ask and pray right now that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would rule and reign in this place. Lord, that you would minister to hearts and spirits as only you can. Father God, I thank you and I praise you for what you've done and what you'll continue to do. Lord, I pray for anyone here right now who do not yet know you. Lord, I ask that right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak. Speak truth and love into their lives. And Lord, may they respond by admitting their need for you, by believing in you as Savior and Lord, and confessing their need for you, committing to live it out each and every day in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for those of us who are here today, we thank you for what you've done. Lord, may you reveal more of who you are. And Lord, if there's any place in our lives where we don't know yet who you truly are, Lord, would you show us? And may we change our lives to reflect more of who you are to a world that's in desperate need of you. We thank you and we praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.